From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Grady Kurpas went to Ukraine to fight. Then he disappeared. That's the headline of a June 2023 Rolling Stone article by Kevin Maurer. He tells the story of a retired Marine captain whose military skill propelled him through an impressive 20-year career. Kurpas retired from the Marines in 2021. When Russia invaded Ukraine the following year, Kurpas traveled to Poland and hitched a ride across the border to Kyiv. Once inside Ukraine, he volunteered for the Ukrainian International Legion. According to Kevin Maurer's Rolling Stone piece, Grady Kurpas's father believed he'd gone to Europe for a vacation. His wife, he saw, knew he was in a war zone, but thought he was helping Ukraine in an advisory capacity. What Grady Kurpas had not told his family is that he went there to fight. Don Turner first met Grady Kurpas when they were sergeants in 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. The, tru- the two crossed paths again when they ended up in 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, where Don Turner served as platoon sergeant for Lieutenant Grady Kurpas. Now retired, former Marine First Sergeant Don Turner lives in Pennsylvania with his family. He joins us via Zoom today. Don Turner, welcome to the program. Hello, and uh, thank you for having me. Good to have you with us. Kevin Maurer is the author of nine books, including No Easy Day, the first-hand account of the mission that killed Osama bin Laden. His 2022 book, Damn Lucky, tells the story of a World War II bomber pilot who survived 25 missions. A three-time New York Times bestselling co-author, Kevin Maurer is also an award-winning journalist and has contributed to Rolling Stone, The Atlantic, GQ, and The Washington Post, among many other publications. Kevin Maurer, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Good to have you with us. Now, obviously, Grady Kurpas was a highly intelligent leader, tactician, sounds like a highly intelligent human. But what made the story of his disappearance in Ukraine something that you wanted to tell? I was sort of taken by uh, by a story from the beginning. We had a mutual friends um, that we, and so I had heard about it when it happened, and it was sort of behind the scenes for me. Um, about a year before, I went to Ukraine myself uh, and spent about a week, um, and it wasn't a successful trip. I didn't really ever get a good story out of it for Rolling Stone, so I was sort of searching for something to replace that, give them back, uh, you know, something for the the time and uh, effort that they had spent on me. So. Um, I met with Hassan, Grady's wife, uh, and we had we just had a really preliminary conversation about what what the update was. Uh, and at that point, I was looking to go back to Ukraine to go to the place where the ambush occurred and see what I could find out. Um, and then it just sort of all came together there. Uh, Rolling Stone was interested in telling that story, and I thought it really was a window into this phenomenon. Uh, you know, the 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 next generation of veterans who were looking to Ukraine to sort of fill a hole. I think that they felt from twenty years of war. Uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. When you first met his wife, Hisan, you were under the impression, and so was she, that he was alive. Yeah. When this started, uh, it was unclear. 
what what had happened to him. There were a lot of theories, uh, and I went into it uh, with both eyes opened. I went into it uh, with the idea that he he could very well be alive, uh, and and really that was the hope. I think was that you know when he did return, he was going to return you know on his feet uh, and ready to recover. So, yeah, absolutely optimist at the, at the beginning uh, and almost all the way through. Don Turner, some of your early days with Grady Kurpas. You trained together in 29 Palms, and you talk about Grady as being that guy who never forgot what it was like to be enlisted, which is part of what made him so so well-liked and well-respected. In this case, in 29 Palms, you were the platoon sergeant. He was commander. Can you just talk about that relationship a little bit? Oh, yeah. I mean, this was after we had both been in the Marine Corps for a bit of time at this point. And um, we had uh, split paths from 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines and ended up over in uh, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines together. Um, You know, like I said, I think the aspect of him never really forgetting where he came from as an enlisted Marine. And I mean, well, combined with the fact that he was an extremely old individual in comparison to everybody else. Um, <laughs> old? You mean chronological age? <laughs> yeah, chronological he was an old age, guy. But he—he he was a—he definitely didn't portray that physically or or mentally because he was sharp as any of them, but um, and and stronger than most. But uh, but. Uh, you know, we uh, we had a really good relationship, not only because, I mean, we served together as sergeants, but um, I think it was, you know, I believe everything happens for a reason. Um, us enlisted guys, we get a little wild and crazy sometimes, and sometimes those officers that transition from enlisted to uh, becoming a commission officer, you know, the, some of that doesn't leave them all the time and they need they need good people around them you know to make sure they're focused on the right direction because we all have this and you know uh little ambition to be able to tell some of our superiors at times when we're younger you know and they make mistakes what they can go do with themselves you know <laughs> and and that's an enlisted way of being you know kind of a neanderthal of hammer peg hit put it in the hole right <laughs> right so so as as uh, as sergeant platoon sergeant you were in charge of you describe it as uh beans bullets and band-aids uh yeah i mean that's just a kind of simplistic way of putting it i guess um i I'm, the dudes the marines they were you know their their um their livelihood what what they had going on in their um you know if they had bad things going on in their personal life they needed help with that was kind of one of my duties and you know it was grady's duty as well but um you know his job is to focus on the mission and get prepared for the next thing that we're doing whether it's training or not right um so my job is really to take care of the troops in that aspect and then when we're out in the field is taking care of our guys and making sure they have the ammo making sure they have the food making sure we have the water and then you know when we're kind of um in in the fight so to speak or doing a doing a mission or whatnot then uh you know my job is kind of like the second in command to the platoon commander which was grady at the time and to free up and focus on fire support so he can focus on fighting the platoon. 
he actually uh, confided in you in 29 Palms at one point. Yeah. That I he'd mean, messed you know, up. And yeah, tell us yeah, this he, story and why it's kind of emblematic of his character. So, um, you know, um, it, I think all, all rules or, or uh, what's that called? A certain amount of time goes by, right? Where uh, you can't get in trouble. But <laughs> It's declassified. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So basically, uh, um, we, we had got done doing a range and everything in 29 Palms we do is, is uh, live fire, you know. So, um, and we always have a repetition of signal plan, right? So we communicate via radio primary sometimes you know if that doesn't work because radios die um crypto fails radios just suck in general most of the time and don't want to work um so you have to have uh alternate and tertiary plans of communication and one of those ways we use um kind of like a bottle rocket that makes different colors just call it that we call them pop-ups um um and they either put out a cluster of different colors, red, green, white. Um, we can have ones that put smoke out and it'll be like a parachute smoke, um, multiple different colors. Same thing with um, some that are just literally a, a flare that just shoots out and um, there'll be a parachute flare. So it floats down. So it stays in the air longer so more people can see it. Um, and when you're done with it, those training missions, you turn them in if you don't use them. And that was my job. So that was my job, collect all the ammo and all that stuff from the platoon. And, you know, good old Lieutenant Kropos at the time was busy doing uh, debriefing and everything else and um, thought he had given me everything. And we checked, like, I thought he had given me everything. We're really good at, you know, doing buddy checks and making sure we clear each other out because he clears me. I clear him pretty much as platoon, platoon commander, platoon sergeant. And then we'll clear the squad leaders and they clear their Marines and bring it all in. And I collect it and I get it together and I turn it into the company. Well, he had a flare, I guess, in his camelback pouch on his back. Um, and we didn't, didn't think about checking that. And he comes up to me and he's like, he's like, uh, I'll have to not use the actual language that was said at the time, I'm sure. But, uh, but he comes up to me with, uh, this, this very, um, I don't know how to describe the look. It wasn't a look of necessarily like, Oh crap, I screwed up, but it was a combination of I screwed up and like, how do I solve this? Like, you know that i could see the enlisted brain working like i know how to solve this there's a rock to hide this under somewhere um <laughs> which is what right. somebody else might have done right right which is what somebody else might have done but um you know i i told him uh i said sir what's what's going on he's like staff sergeant i screwed up um he's like is it too late to turn in ammo i'm like i'm like sir i i turned everything in like an hour ago, that that ship is sailed. We're done. Uh, we we can't do this. And uh, well, uh, I said I'll take care of it. And he's like, Nope. 
nope, I can't let you do that. He walked away and I don't know where he went and he came back and he didn't have the pop up. So <laughs> that's kind of that enlisted mentality didn't die completely. I don't know what he did with it, you know. You're you're um, listening to Coastline. We'll hear more when we come back from this break. Retired Marine Captain and Wilmington resident Grady Kropas went to Ukraine to fight after this short break, how a community came together to develop their own intelligence on what happened to him. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Grady Kerpas was a Marine captain, sniper, husband, father, and Wilmington resident. In 2021, he retired from the military. By 2022, he was headed to Ukraine to fight the Russian invasion. Award-winning journalist and New York Times bestselling author Kevin Maurer wrote Grady's incredible story for Rolling Stone, and he's with us today. Also with us via Zoom, Don Turner, retired Marine sergeant and part of the community that looked after Grady's family during the ordeal and helped to unravel the mystery of his disappearance. Now, Kevin Maurer, Grady Kerpas did not start his adult life expecting to go into the military. He was on a different trajectory. How did he wind up in the Marines? Um, it's interesting. Um, when I first started, you know, talking to to, to Grady and his friends, the, the sense you got was he was a bit of a, a wanderer. He was a bit of a searcher um, all his life. Uh, adopted, uh, brought to New York, really the only uh, Asian uh, in his community. So he was, I think I had a, had a sense of feeling outside of, of, of his community. And I think, um, early in his life, he was searching for his community. And, and I think what he did is, is after nine 11, he lived outside of New York. Um, and he was inspired by nine 11, um, older, you know, an older enlistee, but I knew a lot of guys, uh, when I covered the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war that signed up post nine 11. Um, and I think what he found in the Marines is a community. And I think he found an identity in the Marines, which I think, you know, speaks to what Don was telling us, you know, before. That's that kind of story that I think he found a common common language and a common brotherhood in the Marine Corps. Uh, and I think that's really what he was searching for uh, from the beginning. Yeah. Now, 9-11, uh, Don, you were actually just finishing up your training in the Marine Corps or had just finished you were in Australia celebrating the end of that. What do you remember <laughs> about that t- hearing about 9-11? Uh, <clears throat> well, uh, I, uh, yeah, we'd, we'd just got done doing some training in, um, in the Northern Territory in Darwin. Uh, I, mean, I couldn't, couldn't tell you what the exercise was or anything. And we were out having drinks. Um, so, uh, we were having a good time on our last night of Liberty and, and then, uh, we had shore patrol kind of run in and tell us to go back to our ships. And, um, it was just kind of weird. Um, everywhere you look there was just like a sea of taxis for us. And, uh, we were a part of the 15th Mew at the time. And, um, we got shuttled right back to our ships real fast uh stopped in because we didn't really we thought somebody kind of got in trouble at first you know and that's what was happening 
And so me and one of my buddies kind of dipped into a little sports bar and said, screw this. Cause we were Lance criminals at the time, Lance corporals, E threes <laughs> in the Marine Corps, um, referred to, uh, with such, um, just absolute admiration of them is the Lance criminal. Uh, cause when you need something done, get a Lance corporal. Uh, but, uh, uh, so it wasn't until you got into the bar. Yeah, it wasn't heard. until I went into the bar and we were trying to get in a couple other drinks, you know, just cause. And, and, uh, this Aussie, I was watching the TV, you know, before we had flat screens and stuff, it was the tubes on top of the ceiling and everything kind of a sports bar. And I was noticing there was absolutely like no sports on TV and it just kept showing a plane hitting a building. And I was confused and I didn't know what the heck was going on. And, and um, this Aussie kind of grabbed my shoulder and he's like, hey, mate, looks like you boys are going to war. Mm-hmm. And it kind of like hit me at that moment. And I looked at Chris and we kind of didn't leave our drinks, of course, because we just got them and grabbed our drinks and said we probably should get back to ship and caught a taxi. And that was kind of that there. And then uh, so I didn't get to see all the, you know, amounts of patriotism and things like that, that I know was relayed to us and everything. And we saw on, on the media and, and how united, uh, you know, everybody across the nation was, you know, and, and I'd say, you know, not even just in our country, you know, um, unit unity in, in such a manner that hadn't been seen for a while. Um, yeah. I don't want to say it's, but, uh, you know, and I think that's something that uh, knowing Grady and knowing what kind of brought him into the Marine Corps, that's something that uh, created a segue for him, you know, to uh, have the passion to go over to Ukraine. Yeah, and he had been studying computer science before he joined the Marine Corps. And now we're going to jump ahead in the story to just what caused him to go to Ukraine, and then I, I, I want to circle back to why his wife just had a hard time accepting the fact that, that he was killed in battle there. Um, but he had this 20-year career, Kevin Maurer, mm-hmm. that you write about, and it was, it was an impressive career, too. Like, he was able to—how difficult is it to become—to pass sniper school in the Marine Corps? I mean, based and Don, you can speak to this too. But I mean, based on my research, it's it's not an easy school. It's it's a designation that that comes with a, with an honorific. You know, you're if you get through Marine Sniper School, you're you're looked at as a practitioner. Uh, you know, uh, as a sniper, and and it's not something that uh, they just pass around. So the fact that he got through it, and the fact that he could still maintain those skills even in the Ukraine. What, one of my favorite Grady stories, though, in the Ukraine is he's asked to kind of go back and, and relive his sniper days. And he's self-aware enough to know that he's probably not as good as he used to be in his, in his age. So that just tells me that he understood that this, it's an art form. It's a, it's a highly used skill and that, you know, he, he, yeah. he, he did it and he knew that he couldn't get up to that level again. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, it's not something that you, you sleep on. If you get it, it, it's something to be proud of. Yeah. And so he so 20 years in the Marines, he mm-hmm. retires in 2021. For a lot of people, you can you can see a, 
a Marine retiring and saying, Phew, okay, that's over. The next chapter of my life begins. He's not even retired. Well, he's retired for what, about a year, a full year? Uh, not even that. I think he was only retired for about nine months. Okay, so, so there you go. So what's the Not th- even that, I don't think. I think he was like seven. Is there a parallel between what happened on 9-11 and Russia's invasion of Ukraine? What? Why did he want to go back into a war zone when he'd already been in his share? <laughs> John, do you do you do you, uh, do you have a good answer? I, for this? I mean, I mean, I don't think there is any kind of there is no answer that anyone would be able to understand except those of us that have like experienced. I don't. I don't want it. Like I don't want to say experienced war. Be cliche like all that. Blah blah blah. No, I think really like there is a calling for it, but it's a matter of like we know what we're capable of doing and we know that one Grady, what kind of drove him, you know, from my understanding and, you know, he joined up after nine 11, he was 29 years old when he joined, he already joined with adversity because everything was going against him because he was too old. He had to get waivers to join the Marine Corps. And then he was too old to become an officer and had to get waivers and generals and other people to sign off to say, yes, you can still commission in the Marine Corps, even though you're already enlisted. So he constantly broke barriers. And, you know, whenever he saw how, you know, the things and the livelihood that he'd been given and been able to have, he joined up, you know, after what happened in 9-11 and the same thing, you know, I saw it as well, sitting from my own home. Um, When everything started happening, I wasn't here in the United States, but going back to all that patriotism I heard people talk about, like I've seen it in the people of Ukraine, you know, I mean, when every single person out there was doing everything they could from making Molotov cocktails or helping set up barriers or, you know, just doing everything they could. And to me, that's, that's, that, that's a calling. Like that's, like that's the right, like those people were there for the right reason. You know, what, what, Russia invading Ukraine, absolutely wrong, completely, in, in all aspects, and there's nothing that could convince me otherwise. Um, so, yeah. So he, he, he's going over there with maybe an awareness of his well, absolutely. declining, awareness. the risk, and maybe it's well, a higher I mean, risk. I don't even know about that because there's a lot of them that are over there that are in their 50s that have been doing pretty damn good. Um, you know, and a lot of those Ukrainians that are fighting over there, even older than that, that have been handling themselves pretty well. Uh, the reason he went over there was he just knew he had a capability to be able to take over there and help and teach younger generations to be able to carry on. Um, something that, you know, he left the Marine Corps. And, and it's like, and I get it, it's hard because, you know, we did something with such a great purpose greater than ourselves for such a long period of time. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's hard to figure out what your next thing is going to be. Uh, I think that's why there's, you know, look at, I mean, it was just literally a group of veterans that managed to go through the process and find, you know, Grady's remains and get him home. Right. Like we'll, they're, we'll they're, get there. Yeah. I, I, I know we'll get there, but I mean, 
that's like we're always looking for the next thing to do yeah and and like that wanderer thing i think that's predominantly most anybody that joins the military um i mean i was reading a story of uh, another marine that i can't remember his last name but his first name was frank he he was killed he got his remains recovered um back to california um you know at the end of june or something like that he was classified kind of the same thing a wanderer he was in his time he got out he did multiple jobs he traveled europe you know and stuff like that and i think that's a lot of us i mean we're always trying to find where we can find something to do that's going to be helpful for people in the future sure kevin yeah. mauer I mean, we talked a lot about this uh, don and i and, and you know the sense i got from the reporting too was it's it's a sense of purpose like don says but it's also a sense of identity when you grow up for 20 years, uh, you, you live as Captain Grady Kerpas. Kerpas. I, I always mispronounce that. Uh, the, the reality is that when you, when you wake up the, the first day and you're just Grady, that, that's a different feeling. And so uh, I got a sense uh, both from talking with Don and George and some other folks that, that helped on this, but also talking with Hassan was this, this kind of unmoored feeling of like not having to see the same guy in there. And then I think... In some ways, you search for that, and and I think that's that's a universal feeling for both not only the veteran population, but think of police officers and, and others who, when they leave this these jobs, they they leave a little bit of their identity. So he was searching to for this sense of community. You describe him as restless. A couple of people use that term to characterize him in your Rolling Stone piece, Kevin Maurer. And Don, when we talked, you said that. So much of what you missed about the military yourself was the camaraderie and the relationships and the sense of perp- the sense of being part of something that's bigger than you. Yeah, I mean, you know, no offense to anybody there, but like civilians suck, man. I mean, I'll be honest, like, like in a lot of ways, it's really hard to find pe- like because you understand like most everybody that we serve with especially with what we did we know that that individual in a heartbeat would be willing to give their life for us yeah and you don't find that in the civilian and so it's well and it's well i think it's hard we put up our own barriers and create that you know in a lot of ways because we don't want to have friends with civilians because and because of that in some ways i'm sure a lot of it's subconscious um we don't even realize we do it unless we really take a step back and look at it and think about it. I mean, I don't have civilian friends, really. You know what I mean? Like, I I have my group of core friends that I've had throughout my entire career, you know, and then, but they're all people, I, you, you get used to having people that you can wholeheartedly trust around you. And I'm sorry, but I've been let down more times by civilians since I've been retired from the Marine Corps than I ever was by anybody as a Marine. Yeah. Once Grady Kurpas crosses the Polish border into Ukraine and he signs up with this international legion. He never signed up anything. He never signed any contract. Okay. So he just joined. He joined the international uh, group. Kevin, you write about him performing deep reconnaissance missions over there what what does that mean what what's involved in that um it's funny yeah uh deep reconnaissance um 
and, and obviously, Don, uh, check me on this one, but uh, the civilian yeah. sort of, uh, I think, definition would be uh, sneaking behind enemy lines or around enemy positions and watching and counting and reporting back their strength and what they're doing. Yep, it's not active engagement. Uh, it's actually the, the you don't want to be engaged or seen. So that's, that's uh, you know, what, what a lot of people you know, don't understand with Marine Corps snipers is the shooting, you know, what they are commonly known for in the books and everything or how many confirms they get, like Carlos Hathcock and the legends and stuff. Well, that's such a minute part of actually what they do. Most of what they do is uh, deep behind enemy lines, forward reconnaissance, um, RNS, recon and surveillance. So they will be very, very far in front doing exactly what Kevin said. They're counting enemy equipment, personnel, direction of movement, um, time of day. They're just constantly doing enemy reports and sending it up to higher so they can develop the battleground in front of the friendly forces that will be coming in to fight the Russians or whoever it is. He was over there in Ukraine for about a month, mm-hmm. and news comes that he's been killed at an ambush site. The State Department right. tells his wife that he's been killed, and she doesn't believe it. Yeah, she gets the initial call from someone from the Legion. From the Legion. Yeah, yeah. and then yeah. from there, she doesn't believe it. That She sends some messages, and then I think that's when, you know, people like Don and George and, and his network get involved in trying to build out a, a you know, they build out a pretty impressive team of, uh, of, of former uh, military members and, and current, to be honest, uh, who then really start to look at all the intelligence and start to build out a, a, a profile of where they think what might have happened. And, and so, you know, the, yeah. the, there's no assumption made that he's dead. The assumption made that they, that they need to locate him, whatever that is. OK, so this yeah, news he would... that, that he's dead is not um, it's just not accepted right off the bat. It's, as... it's... Yes, it's not accepted. The individual that. Um shouldn't have even been making that phone call. It wasn't his place. And um, the Ukrainian um, Ministry of Defense actually classified him very shortly after this as MIA, which then the State Department notified. This was a week or so after the initial missing, you know, we got wind of something happening to Grady. Um, I don't know, it was at least a week or so after, but this was just a legionnaire taking it upon himself to do something that he thought was right when, you know, I mean, he wasn't wrong. Grady was killed at that location, but that was not like that was not the right way. And, and, and there was too many unknowns. And this person, I, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Does this and we're, we're going to go to break in a second. But Kevin, I'll just ask you, does this create any complications with the State Department since Grady is an American citizen and he's fighting in a war that American citizens are not officially engaged in? I mean, has that issue come up? Because we've heard other people talking since about the Neutrality Act, which is a very old law that I think has rarely been used to prosecute anyone. But 
I mean, yeah, the, the, the amount of bureaucracy that comes around this, this case is, is staggering. And at the end of the day, you know, it's a chaotic environment. It's a war zone. You have a limited staff. And, and you know, to, to give the State Department credit, they're doing the best they can with this. But it isn't easy. And you are talking about a battlefield and, and first reports. You're listening to Coastline. Grady Kurpas died fighting against the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He leaves behind his wife and daughter in Wilmington. We'll have more after this break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Don Turner served with Grady Kurpas in the United States Marine Corps. A retired captain, Kurpas even asked Turner to join him in Ukraine when he joined the International Legion fighting against Russian troops. Don Turner is with us today via Zoom. In the studio is Kevin Maurer, an award-winning journalist and New York Times bestselling author, three-time New York Times bestselling author. He's written extensively about and inside war zones. And when he heard about Kurpas's mysterious disappearance during a Russian ambush, he started investigating. That led to an article about the extraordinary life and death of Grady Kurpas in Rolling Stone magazine. So he's in Ukraine. He's formed a unit called Raven, do I ha- am I using that language correctly, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that's what they they called that unit. Uh, I don't think he didn't pick it. Yeah, it was a team name. Okay, yeah. A, yeah, team name a team name for this reconnaissance that they're engaging in. And Kevin, you you write that his call sign was Dead Man. What is a call sign? Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> the call sign is uh, it's ju- it's just like you think in the movies. Uh, it, it's used yeah. on the radio sometimes. Um, it's it's funny. Uh, there, there's a there's a really formal military way of doing call signs, and then there's there's the informal way. I think this was more maybe tongue in cheek informal. Uh, and he makes a reference of it in some of the emails traffic that he sent back to his family and friends. So this ambush happens. Uh, somebody maybe inappropriately tells his wife that he's died, but we don't know this for sure at this point. And Don, you start collaborating with other people independently, this is independent of the U.S. government, right, to find out what happened to Grady. How did you start that intelligence effort? Who came together um, for that? I'm, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not going to take any credit as starting anything. I just, no, uh, that it was, it, I don't, um, it was some of us that had already been myself and a good friend of mine, George, who is also one of mine and Grady's squad leaders had already been having conversations with Grady before he went over or right after he went over there, kind of saw some signs on some social media he had posted and stuff like that. And so I kind of reached out to him and he's like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm over here. Um, when all that happened, me and George had already been talking because we were trying to get radios 
um, so they could have cryptic, uh, cryptid uh, um, transmissions and uh, wider, um, be able to have longer range for transmissions and everything to do some of their missions they were doing. And so we did a fundraiser and, and things like that. And right about that time, that's kind of when he kind of went missing. So we were already talking with him. We were already trying to help him, a bunch of us, a bunch of friends, a bunch of brothers that had served with him to get him and his team some radios whenever he uh, went missing. Um, man, as far as like the, the government, I mean, yeah, they, they didn't do anything except what they were fed by us, so. Right. And when during the break, I don't usually talk about what happened during the break because it can be confusing for listeners. But I think this is this is worth bringing up. Both of you talk about the conflicting values um, and the conflicting feelings that go along with fighting in Ukraine. Like, Don, you've said part of you really understands that fight as justified and part of you wants to be there. And yet another part of you feels what? Uh, I mean, it's, 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 there's a, there's a confliction of it because I mean, we're just bleeding, you know, everything in the world financially aid wise, uh, financial aid wise over to Ukraine. And it's not just us, you know, it's definitely a lot of other countries, I guess, but I mean, we're always the ones that are going to be, you know, picking up the tab, the the largest piece of the tab whenever the night closes down, um, we have to go home, right? So um, it's it's a it's a hodgepodge of capital uh, possi- capitalist possibilities, uh, contractors, and you know everything else. So that brings corruption, you know, and people have to have people get elected. So. I mean, this is going to be a big thing coming up in this next election. And I think uh, who supports all of this the most is probably going to be the one that gets favored. Kevin Maurer, you say war is a business. Make no mistake about that. And you describe what's happening in Ukraine right now as uh, the Wild West, in a sense. Right. So that my original trip to Ukraine, I was going with a, a foundation that was working on an app that could track the the, the weapons that the U.S. was sending, uh, as well as create a, a mechanism for uh, Ukrainian units to s- request material. Um, and it was done in, in response to the fact that you have so much aid floating, flooding in there and that there needs to be some accountability. There needs to be some tracking. How do you know where it needs to go? Um, but yeah, make no mistake. And a war is a business. Uh, it is, it, you know, we saw that for 20 years. We saw, you know, you know, Halliburton and, and Iraq, uh, you know, made made a lot of money uh, building infrastructure. Um, well, while I was in Ukraine, I, I had I had dinner with contractors that were based in Iraq that had flown from Baghdad to come up to to Kiev to see what kind of opportunities there were contracting wise. So. Um, while we and this what we were talking about was like holding two ideas in our head and, yeah. and both being true. And, and, and while the fight for Ukraine is 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 righteous and needs to be done and, and what and what the what the Russians are doing in Ukraine is criminal. At the same time, we have to acknowledge that that's going to attract a certain level of corruption, a certain level of opportunism that people are going to go and try to, to, to make money. Uh, and that's the, that's the business side of it. Yeah, unfortunately, there's, you know, there's, there's crappy people on both sides, right? 
Um, but it's it's really the the purposes for the people of the country itself. It's not about the politicians or the people that are in positions of power that run the country or ours or anything like that. I think it goes to the you know the most simplest of of reasons is like we stand up for each other. Right? You know that's kind of like what our reason is and. Like they need somebody to stand up for them, and that's what a lot of people are doing. And like Bud Grady to go over there. Kevin, you talked about a guy who pays for bodies in Ukraine. I think it was something that was in your, and I didn't know what that meant. So th- that was part of a, a, a the network of nonprofits and NGOs that are there that are working on on tracking. You know, it, it's part of what the network that Don was part of. Um, that was reaching out and ha- they, there's people on the ground they're doing demining they're doing the, the things that are necessary uh, to like Don said to, to, to assist in, in locating you know casualties and uh, paying for bodies is probably trying to get information um, I'd have to okay. look back in the story but yeah it's not okay. they're not so paying it, for the, the bodies I, themselves no. tongue in cheek okay yeah I mean yeah a, a turn of phrase. Okay. So one of the reasons that you guys didn't necessarily believe, and he saw and his wife didn't believe that Grady had died in this ambush, is because he'd survived so many things he probably shouldn't have been able to survive, <clears throat> including there was a, a suicide bomber in Ramadi with you, Don? Uh, well... Yeah, I mean, we were out there at the same time. I was not, I don't think I was on this specific mission with him that I can recall. Um, I don't remember. I just, he, yeah, so basically their team had uh, engaged somebody. They went up to kind of do a con- confirmation, and the guy had a uh, vest kind of like uh, that had ball bearings and stuff strapped to him, and he did the old thumb squeeze or something, I guess, or whatnot and yep so he took a ball bearing through both of his butt cheeks he got (laughs) got made fun of a lot you can only imagine you know um the things he didn't get evacuated like out of country or nothing because you know it was just a million dollar wound right so um but uh and it, 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 it was even kind of funnier because it, it created a, a good little thing whenever he came to the platoon and he had the Purple Heart and the Marines were like, well, how'd he get that? He knew we, they knew we were together as sergeants. I'm like, I don't know. You have to ask him. It's a sensitive subject. Right. So going back to your intelligence effort, and I, I understand you're not taking credit for having launched it but you were part of this effort. And... Yeah, it was, it's just a group of us and really is, is just picking up the phone and reaching out to people and trying to weed out the, the people that seemed like they were full of crap to people that were legit. And, you know, there's, there's pretty much not a single person that isn't a veteran or had, you know, maybe served in some capacity before in in our country, you know, Um, that helped us along the way. But, um, you know, we started having doubts because we had messages on cell phone and we started uh, having people who are really good and smart with computers. And it's really not that difficult, but to 
takes a little bit more than some crown editor like myself. I mean, we had problems trying to get Zoom to work for audio. So um, <laughs> figuring out the IMEI tracking number. And and um, so, you know, they gave us doubt because we were getting pings and messages read when they shouldn't have been read. Right. And so, and then it kind of led us to some other stuff um, that made us uh, believe that, Perhaps he survived that, which we absolutely believe because if he can survive all the things he's went through and, you know, he could have survived this. And we also talked to one of the guys in his team that did survive it. Um, and the other one was in Russian captivity. Yeah. Kevin Maurer. I mean, I'll, I'll give Don some credit um, on this. And Don was part of a big network, but but really, what I, what attracted me to it and what I thought was so interesting was sort of what what Don was saying is is they all know a lot of people and they, and they have a an institutional knowledge now about what combat is uh, and some of the technology that they could, you can implement and and that that allowed that network and that that innate knowledge and that understanding of modern warfare allowed them to pretty build a, a very comprehensive picture um, of what may have happened and to keep tabs on it and to continue to drill down. And, and, and w- you know, when he interviews a survivor, you know, Don or George, they understand, you know, combat in a way that I don't as, as, not, as a non-combatant. So I think that institutional knowledge combined with their understanding of military operations led them to build a really comprehensive network that was really more robust and more effective than, say, the State Department bureaucratic network. Right. And yeah. so you we we only have a few minutes left. And so you eventually did get confirmation that Grady had passed and there were remains and arrangements were made through the Weatherman Foundation, I think, to have those mm-hmm. remains returned to the U.S. Yeah. But how did you finally get that confirmation? Where did that come from? I actually got a text message from Don. Yeah. So... Um... Again, the, the, you know, the wet, with all the group and then the Weatherman Foundation, um, you know, they carry the ball over the, the goal line for us. Um, like what uh, Kevin was saying, you know, yes, we were able to create something pretty crazy and wild from just the homes of our, our you know, the living rooms and bedrooms and bathrooms and every other room that you could have a phone and, and a conversation with somebody. Or text message, you know, without ever stepping foot in Ukraine, we had such a extremely well broken down picture of the battle. Um, and so when we finally were able to get some information, the Weatherman Foundation, like we got some people to go in there and they were able to take cadaver dogs and go to the exact grid location where we knew they were. And that's where they started finding remains. So um, pretty sure every single person that was killed that day and in, in, uh, Grady's team um, had been recovered. So, And this, can you just briefly, Kevin, describe what actually happened in that moment when he was killed? Uh, they got ambushed on their way back. They went out to look for a, a mortar team, and as they were working their way back through the trees, um, they got ambushed by some a, a Russian force. Uh, and in the beginning of the story, I, I lay out sort of what happened. And, and, and Grady was—it uh, appears Grady was killed instantly, right? And that in, in the yeah. ambush, and then uh, the guy with him, Andy Hill, a British national, was captured. Um, 
So yeah, it, it, it looks like it happened right there, despite the search. Yeah. Yeah. And you uh, said, will he be going to Arlington National Cemetery? Is that has there been a that's, service? That's yet? the process. That there's no so there hasn't been a service yet. The family did a small uh, thing themselves. Um, you know, we had uh, confirmation through uh, a coroner back in the States, they were able to uh, confirm again, a secondary confirmation minus just the DNA they did through dental um, work and, and stuff. So um, he sounds in the process of trying to get everything situated with uh, Arlington. Yeah. So um, it's, it's, it's just a slow process because he already has the, you know, he meets all the criteria. It has to go through headquarters, Marine Corps. Quantico has to approve it. Um, and it's just, it's kind of ridiculous how long it does take. But at the same time, um, I understand because it's a pretty significant place to be buried and they got to make sure everybody gets there. That deserves to be there, I guess. I don't know, but yeah. hopefully soon. And I'm so sorry for your loss. That is this edition of Coastline. Don Turner, Kevin Maurer, thank you both so much for telling this story today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. You can find the episode along with notes and links at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.